tonight, uh, we are beginning uh, looking at the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. And I, I looked at what we had, and I think, we, well, you know me, we may be unusually short tonight, uh, because I, we're only going to cover the wrong part of it tonight, and then we're going to look at, we're going to go back next Wednesday, and no, not next Wednesday, two Wednesdays from now, and uh, clean up, uh, go back to the, the right way of it. Now, I've preached this several times uh, for the last seven years. Several times I've preached prior to the Lord's Supper. I've preached several messages on this. So for some of you, and for some of you, this is where the church has stood for years. So this is going to be fairly familiar uh, to you. Uh, but we still need to go over it. We're still going over this through the process. I figured we might as well just walk through it just like we've done everything else. Uh, it's good for us to hear these things again. But tonight I want to look at some of the unscriptural teachings of the Lord's Supper. Uh, primarily, let's just go to 1 Corinthians 11, because that's the general area of, of the Lord's Supper, the, one of the primary areas of teaching for it. Uh, we believe, the New Testament believe, in what we call two ordinances, okay? What an ordinance is a rule that has been given to us to keep, okay? And it's not just a rule, but it's, a very, uh, it's, a, it's one that's precious and direct to the church, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, Preaching the gospel, that goes without saying. That's our commission. The ordinance for those who are saved is baptism in the Lord's Supper, something that we are purposefully to do. Okay, We call them ordinances, again, directly connected with the idea of something that is that we are told to do, and then, of course, why. Uh, we could look at 1 Corinthians 11 partially in that spot about why we have those two ordinances. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, maybe there's a piece there. Uh, but baptism would be the, uh, what we call what, the initiation ordinance, if you will. And the Lord's Supper would be the perpetual ordinance, that which we are to keep as long as time uh, begins. Now, as we talked about baptism, baptism helps, helps uh, keep the church clean and protected uh, from without. Okay, It, it helps us to... Pre- Make sure that people are coming into the church are adopting Baptist doctrine, okay? And that's part of the baptism. That's why we have those, con- those conversations. But uh, the Lord's Supper would be to help keep the church pure on the inside, okay? It helps us to constantly keep our hearts and minds. It's, a very, it's, it's why, I, I mean, I know some churches do it frequently. Some churches literally do it once a month. Others do it quarter. And listen, the Bible says as oft, so it's, it's as it's pretty much how we wish to do it. But I have seen it become something that is it's just something that we do because it's part of church. And once I saw it done with proper ceremony and, and felt the impact of that upon my own soul, uh, I have dramatically changed it to in my own heart. I do believe. I believe the best way to do it is the once a year. Make it very, very um, God-honoring, very, if you can, Lift it high. Make it very precious and special and important. Not just, we'll tack it on at the end of a service every month. No, I want it to be, it's, it's, very, it's a very precious and important thing, the Lord's Supper. And it does, it helps keep, we should honestly prepare, every member should prepare for the Lord's Supper. It shouldn't be, go, oh yeah, that's right, it's the Lord's Supper. It should be days prior. We should be asking the Lord to help us 
Is there anything in my heart that would prevent me from, from taking this properly? Is there anyone I need to get right with? Uh, we should purposefully be presenting ourselves to the Lord for examination prior to the Lord's Supper. That's, but anyways, I'm getting ahead of that a little bit. I'm probably getting some teachings that I'm going to be in in a couple weeks. But So, unscriptural teachings. But let's, let's look at this passage right here in 1 Corinthians 11. We could go all the way back to verse 17, okay? Because um, he, begins ta- he begins correcting the church there in Corinth about how they were, they were practicing it. They were turning it into uh, almost a party and mealtime uh, where not everyone was included and the people who were rich got better stuff and the people who were poor got less stuff. And then some people were, I mean, there wasn't any sharing. It was my stuff, not your stuff, and kind of interesting. So, But let's go down to verse 23, okay? In other words, he was saying, don't turn this into a big fellowship and party. Fellowships are good, but this is not that, okay? So verse 23 says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And this is one of the, things, one of the reasons we call it an ordinance. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, he says, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And we'll just leave it there for the time being. Again, you can go back and read 17 through 34, and that'll give you a little bit more broad part of the context. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We'd ask that you'd bless, uh, Lord, with this portion of the teaching on the Lord's Supper tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are a bunch of different ways that people look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of them are predominant. There's a couple of them that are predominant amongst many other denominations, if you will, and religions. Surprisingly, this is another one of those areas that typically separates Baptists from many, many of other religions uh, in other denominations, and we'll see some of that. Uh, not necessarily all, but many. Uh, so one of the primary longest-term ideas that has been false about the Lord's Supper is what is called transubstantiation, okay? Transubstantiation. This is primarily, primarily Roman Catholic. I do believe some of the Orthodox churches also believe this same general thing. We would call it the Romanist view. So if anything, if, there's a, if it's directly Roman connected, so the Orthodox Church is the Catholic Church, this is generally what they teach. Now what does that mean? Transubstantiation, okay? The... Uh, as they are presenting the Lord's Supper, and some of you may have seen, they ha- usually have a wine goblet, and there's a plate with a, you know, I mean, a big, pretty big goblet they all partake out of, and then there's the little plate with the bread. 
the priest will make this pronouncement as he presents it for the, for the people there to partake. Hac est corpus meum. Hac est corpus meum. And what this means is, this, this is gonna, it sounds weird, and the Catholics soften it, good, good bitch, a good bit, excuse me, wow, a good bit, but is that the wafer, the bread and the wine, literally, listen, literally and actually change in their substance to become the flesh and blood of Christ. Now that sounds disgusting, doesn't it? But that's what they believe. That, that is the literal definition, transubstantiation, that the wafer and the wine literally and actually change in substance to become the real flesh and blood of Christ. Okay, With what they call only the accidents are viewable. The accidents, by what they mean, is the blood, the, the grape, the juice, and the wafer. Okay, that's all that's visible. Okay, but it, there's it's the the physical presence, the physical presence of the body and blood of Christ is present at at their partaking of communion. As a matter of fact, that's one of the primary centerpieces of all of Roman Catholicism. Uh, now, can I just say right off the bat that I have a whole bunch of verses, like just like instantaneous, and a whole bunch of just natural things that run through my head too. Like, does this mean that the Lord approves of cannibalism? Because that's what that sounds like. That's, is it, I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, it's like the Donner Party every Sunday. Okay, I say this is the West. You all know who the Donner Party is. Okay, yeah. It's not only that, it's... It repeatedly, to me this is interesting, but it repeatedly denies a resurrected Christ. And it constantly keeps Christ on the cross in a state of, of essentially you know, being torn apart and bleeding. Not the resurrected Christ, not the victorious Christ, but the, and listen, I understand, that, that's, that's the purpose. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to help us re- remember that sacrifice I understand that. But they're literally talking about literally the, the damaged body of Christ back on the cross. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. If it's the literal body and blood of Christ, that is, that's Christ on the cross. That's not Christ crucified, literally. And I, I just have a real problem with that. Now, here's an interesting thing. Um, it wasn't until the 9th century that they even started buying into this whole thing. This whole idea, ninth century, and not until uh, and this was there's a guy this was his name I'm not kidding this is his name, uh, Pascasius Radbertus, okay, that he he was the guy that taught all this Pascasius Radbertus, and it was declared the official doctrine of the church in 1215 A.D. by Pope Innocent the Third. At Lateran IV, okay? The count, now that's a meeting, Lateran IV. And then the Council of Trent, which I believe was in the 13 or 1500s, I forget, but I think it was, say, 1500s, they reaffirmed that same doctrine, okay? And you look it up for yourself, is, the transubstantiation is what the Catholics teach. Now, they try to soften it a lot, but that, that's, the ascent, that's the essence of what it is. Now, why do they get there? Because when, like, when we read this here, uh, we, Jesus, Paul says, this, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. He doesn't say it's my blood. But Jesus made a comment about this, didn't he, in the book of John. So turn to John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6. This is Jesus talking to the Jews, referencing himself as the bread of life. Remember, you know, so he talks about himself as the light of life, the light of men, and the bread of life. So he mentions that in verse 48, John chapter 6, 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers eat man in the wilderness. Okay. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And then the Jews, misunderstanding, verse 52, Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Listen to Jesus' answer, verse 53. Now remember how Jesus loved to talk to the Jews in riddles, parables. Not riddles, but parables. Almost purposefully hard for them to understand. So verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, if that's all we were going to do, was take those, those, the Roman thought process in that verse and say, without any other looking at Scripture to talk about how it's used, we'd have to say, well, you know, it does kind of sound biblical, doesn't it, when it's put that way? Okay, so here's the problem. John also says that Jesus said, I am the door. So is he a door? Because if we're going to use this translation, we're going to use that way to look at the text, then we have to be consistent with that use. It's logic. Okay, that's, this is how you use logic. If, I'm, if the logic applies here, then it has to apply everywhere else that this language is used. So if Jesus says, I am the door, then we have to say Jesus is a door. Well, you understand? But we understand that he was using that as a metaphor, right? Jesus said, that's what he said, I am the door. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Does that mean he's a loaf of bread? Jesus said, I am the light of life. Does that mean that Jesus is, you know, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, because it's light. You, you hear what I'm saying? Does everybody connect the dots? We have to be careful when we start using these things because Jesus himself said, I am, or I mean, these are all metaphors. He said things like this, and they're purposefully metaphors. So, John 15, what, is, what does Jesus say? I am the vine, and ye are the branches. So, if we go out to the, if we go out to the, the, grape, the grape vines out here, is that Jesus? If we take the logic that, Jesus, that the Catholics are using here, I'll give you one better. Jesus turned around to Peter at one point and said what? Get thee behind me, Satan. So if we're going to take it literally, that means the very first pope of the Roman Catholic Church that they claimed was Satan. (laughs) I mean, if we start carrying all this stuff to its logical conclusion, we start putting two and two together, there's some issues here. So uh, we have to be careful of understanding when Jesus is being literal and when he's using metaphors. Uh, Besides that... He would essentially be, and I said this before, but he'd essentially be telling everyone to cannibalize him. Now, let me, let's pause and think about this. The Bible never contradicts itself, correct? Okay, so if Jesus is telling us to eat blood, drink blood, does that conflict with any scripture? Yeah. I mean, Leviticus, is it 19? I think Leviticus 19, 17, it's somewhere in here. How come I don't have it right there? I want to say it's Leviticus 19.17. Uh, it should be pretty obvious. Leviticus 17.10. Leviticus 17.10. That's where the literal eating, the literal blood, blood is forbidden uh, by, by the law. Okay? 
Now, not all law was set aside, so be careful about some of that stuff. Eating literal blood is forbidden. Kind of really interesting. Not only that, let's just, let's just throw in a couple other side things. So, it is by the statement of the priest. Why don't you think about that? It is by the statement of the priest, hoc uh, corpus meum, that his statement turns the elements into. So since when did man have creative ability? That's another problem, really kind of an issue here. That that kind of puts some creative ability in the hand of the priest. And let's and okay, let's just let's just be flat out honest. Where is Christ? Where? So how can he be in heaven, resurrected, and on earth in a partially crucified state? Where is his body? In heaven. His body is in heaven. I mean, I'm carrying a little bit further out, almost facetious arguments here, but when Jesus also said about the supper, symbolically, this is my body, okay, Matthew chapter 26, he was, of course, bodily present then, but he didn't make them eat his body. He made them eat the bread. You understand? He could have pulled pieces off of himself, but he didn't. That's disgusting, but that is what the Catholic Church has, has brought it brought into. Now, let me just say, don't think of the Catholics as being evil. It's just the devil probably pushing religion to see how far man would believe it. I mean, the enemy is not the Catholics. The enemy is the devil, okay? Uh, so you have to be a little bit careful about that. Uh, there is one more point, okay? Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there, that's great. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll do one more point here and then we'll move on. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. It says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. So to believe in transubstantiation would continually put Christ in the middle of his sacrifice every time you partake of the Lord's Supper. But he only sacrificed himself once. Once. Okay? Now I will add, which are not on my notes, uh, if you do not partake of the Lord's Supper in the Catholic Church, uh, you lose your line in heaven. You lose your line to get to heaven. You must partake. To get to heaven, you must partake the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, you lose your... I mean, so you understand, you understand over here, every once in a while, there are certain days, like Ash Sunday, a little bit more, a little bit more important. And they, they all come to make sure on Ash Sunday, even I think sometimes bigger than Easter, that they are there getting the, the thing done and they're partaking of that, of that particular communion because they don't want to lose their salvation. So, you know, once a year, just go and make sure I'm all good. Okay? And, but those who are more religious, they go every, every week to some Mass so they can partake of the Lord's Supper at every Mass. Okay? Very interesting. So that's transubstantiation. Now, there's a whole group of people who broke off, the Protestants, and they were kind of grossed out by some of that. And they recognized also that Scripture seemed to be pretty obvious that it was a metaphor, not realistic. And so they adopted a view called consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. So this is, this is the, the idea. The idea is that 
the body and blood of Jesus Christ are not physically present, but mystically present. Okay? They're not physically present, but mystically present. Uh, this is Martin Luther used it as this description. He, he talked about you can have a fire and you can have iron. Now, I'll just say I disagree with this allegory, but that's what Martin Luther... Is if you have fire and you have iron, but if you put the iron in the fire, he says the two become one. The fire and the iron become one. And I'm like, no, the iron's still iron and the fire's still fire. Now, the iron can be hot enough to start a fire, but he says they become one. And that's kind of how he visions it, is that while they are taking, while they are taking the Lord's Supper, there is a mystical thing that happens inside the believer. Okay? There's this, and literally, okay, so I'll just, I'll just give you a, an interesting thing. So Twin Falls Reformed Church. So it was kind of easy to pick. They're an easy target, okay? Twin Falls Reformed Church. I knew they'd believe this, some version, so I went ahead and looked it up. So Twin Falls Reformed Church. And by the way, this is almost all Reformed churches, okay? They are a member of the denomination called the Reformed Churches of America, which is the oldest denomination in the United States, I believe, if I remember right. So the, so the Twin Falls Reformed Church, part of the Reformed Churches of America, the church and the denomination both hold to what's called the Heidelberg Confession. Okay, I'll let you look that up later. The Heidelberg Confession has a catechism. Okay, so if anybody here ever did the Westminster Catechism? For, so why was man created? What is the chief end of man? If you ever had to answer that question, what is the chief end, chief purpose of man? To give God glory and to, to love him forever, worship him forever. Uh, we're probably much more in line with Westminster, but anyways, I'm not, I don't hold to those kind of things. But the Twin Falls Reformed Church and the Reformed Church of America hold to the Heidelberg Confession. So this is what the Heidelberg Confession says. And again, this is the Q&A. And I believe this is number, well, this is the header over it. Okay, what is communion? And there's, there's a little bit, he talked, communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, which is a Catholic term, and the word Eucharist implies that salvation is a part, okay, but we'll just keep on going. So there's several things here, I'm going to go down to the part that, that we need to worry about. In these simple actions, believers, listen, experience a profound mystery. Christ himself is present, and his life passes into us and is made ours. Now, if I was to say the, the, the let, me just, let me just ask you, when did Christ's life pass into you and it was made yours? Yeah, salvation, when you got saved, right? So you understand that even, even Protestant churches, okay, Protestant churches, Many of them believe that when they partake of the Lord's Supper, there is a salvific, a salvation process happening. There's some renewal of their salvation. Some new part of Christ, I guess, or renewal part of Christ that they did not get before, and his life is passed back into them. They keep going back and making it something that Jesus never did. He said, this do in remembrance of me. That's why he said to do it, in remembrance of me, not to maintain your salvation. So this is the next part of that same, the header on the Heidelberg Confession, the Heidelberg, uh, or the header over the uh, Lord's Supper. What happens during communion? 
So there's a few things about the, the prayers and sharing of the bread and wine. He said, they say this, The past event of our Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension comes into the present so that its power once again touches us, changes us, and heals us. So they believe, listen, they believe when they are partaking of the Lord's Supper that the cross and the power of the cross touches them again. It's needed again. Now, we all, we all had the power of cross, the power of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ touch us at salvation. Okay? But they believe when they take the Lord's Supper that this power once again touches them, changes them, now, if you're a believer and you've been made a saint and you're fit to live in the heavenlies, as Colossians says, what needs to be changed? I just want you to think about that a little bit, okay? And heals us again, again, okay? So that's kind of interesting. So that is under, let's see, so, and then the, the catechism, number, six, number 75. So the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer, Q&A, number 75. This is what it says. As surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Again, refreshes my soul for eternal life. So let me ask you, if you get eternal life, how long does eternal life last? Forever. So why would he... Eternal life need to be refreshed. How do you get more eternal out of eternal? You know, I'm going to add a little bit more eternity to eternity. Huh? That's like adding zero to zero. What do you get? Zero. I mean, there's nothing else you can add. Okay? It's all you got. Now I'll go further. What, one thing they didn't say. The very next thing in the Heidelberg Confession, or Heidelberg Catechism. They say they hold to this Heidelberg Confession. So here's, the, here's number 76 that they don't post nice and loud on their website, okay? Heidelberg Catechism Q&A number 76. Question, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink, out his, or to drink his poured out blood? Answer, it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and thereby to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the Lord's Supper. I just didn't give you a description of the gospel out of the Heidelberg Catechism. I give you their definition, answer to the Lord's Supper, the communion, okay? Let, in other words, communion gives them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Is that, does the Bible teach that anywhere? No. This do in remembrance of me. This is so obviously wrong as to be a little over the top, but you understand this is from a group of people who, they were trained Catholic their whole life, there's centuries of Catholic doctrine poured into them, they begin to find some things are wrong and they get out. They find some other groups that are going to eat, including us, are going, ah, we don't want to go as far as that. And they found a balance in the middle and they brought a lot of those Catholic thoughts with them. They just tried to make them more palatable, pun intended, okay, if you, if you get that, that, more palatable for themselves and for others to believe. But if you want to get down truthful about, about many Protestant denominations, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, they're going to add a salvation aspect to the Lord's Supper, and that is not at all Bible, okay? So, that's interesting. So, consubstantiation. This, uh, so, we said, the, the body and blood of Christ are mystically present, 
Okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. Some of you have heard of Occam's razor. Okay? Well, Occam had more than just Occam's razor. Occam had a, a philosophy, but the whole idea of consubstantiation is generally based on Occam's philosophy. Listen, that uh, matter is ubiquitous. Okay, you understand what ubiquitous means? It's like uh, present or appearing anywhere. Okay? So like around here, goat heads are almost ubiquitous. That's a sin and shameful, but they are. They just show up everywhere. Now I want you to think about that. That means every time we eat, the Lord's body and blood are present. Stop at McDonald's and grab a, grab a bite to eat. But if it's based on Occam's philosophy that matter is everywhere, then every time I eat, the, matter, the, blood, the body and blood of Jesus Christ is present. So it can be in a McDonald's burger. It can be in a, you know, a seven-scoop ice cream sundae. You know, that's, that's a little ridiculous. I, I, I don't know how to get there. Okay. Now, there's another, there's another one called the Christian Passover. So there's transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Then there's one called the, the Christian Passover. Okay. This, uh, some Reformed churches would, would apply to this. Uh, as opposed to consubstantiation, because it's covenant theology. Christian Passover is covenant theology. Now, here's the three, three primary mistakes that covenant theology makes. It says that the church, okay, the present-day church, is Israel. So everything in the Bible that talks about Israel is now referring to the church. All the promises belong to the church. You get that? Okay, the second thing they believe, listen, that circumcision is equal to baptism. So, so like the Old Testament, the Israelites had circumcision. We have baptism. Therefore, let's do it for infants. If we're going to circumcise them when they're baby, let's go ahead and baptize them because it is the circumcision was the, was the outward sign that they were a follower of Christ. Okay, uh, And so baptism, that was their way. You have to have baptism. It's just like circumcision. It's the, it's the, so if Israel is the church, you understand why they have to bring circumcision forward. And then the Passover would be the Lord's Supper. Okay? The Passover would be the Lord's Supper. Now, I'll challenge that right off the bat because there's very good evidence. Matter of fact, my own opinion is, is that the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, was not the Passover. It was the night before the Passover. And there's really good evidence to support that. But secondarily, beyond that, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What would, the, what would the Passover be for us as believers? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. First Corinthians chapter 5, go down with me down to verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. We're talking about sin there. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. What's our Passover for the Christian? Christ is our Passover. Passover, keep saying Passover. Not the Lord's Supper. Christ is the Christian's Passover. So right there you've got a biblical thing that contradicts with this whole idea. Okay, But essentially what this does, if you've got Israel being the church, you have to make circumcision, baptism, and Passover the Lord's Supper, and it provides a provides a pretty convenient way to maintain your view of the ordinances that we just talked about, some of what we just talked about. So, it's very interesting. And this is a New Testament in his blood, 
the new covenant in his blood, not the old covenant, which was the Passover. But anyway, so that's, that's called the Christian Passover. There's, there's another one called sacrament, okay? Sacrament, uh, which... Now, you understand that there's a Reformed denomination, but then there are other denominations who call themselves Reformed. So I don't know if you know there are Baptist churches that call themselves Reformed. We are Reformed in theology. So there's, there's a denomination, Reformed Church, and then there's people that just call themselves Reformed, so, uh, which we are neither, by the way, uh, never have been. But so some of the people who claim to be Reformed, okay, they see it as a sacrament. And again, basically, this is, this is the simplest way to look at it, is that, that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace for the believer, to obtain grace. Okay? How do we obtain grace? Salvation. Okay? And the gift of God. We get God's grace at salvation. Any grace beyond that is just the, the blessing of God. Okay? Uh, but essentially what they say, it is the sign and seal, the covenant of the grace. Okay? And then there's a last one, the last one called a, it's called a fellowship. Um, you may have heard it put as a feast of charity. I have heard recently it, it, it said that way. Uh, one house church I've heard of, that's, they, they practice Lord's Supper as a feast of charity. Uh, and essentially this is what it is. The church gathers in and they have a fellowship. And what their idea is, it's, a, it's supposed to be a love feast. And I, that, I'm, that don't, don't make that, don't get your mind in the gutter. That's not what they're referencing. But they're, what they're saying is, it's just a time when the church gathers together and they love each other. Whatever that means, I'm not exactly sure. But they just, it's just a time of joy to get together and love each other. And, and that's their feast of charity, feast of joy. And that's their Lord's Supper. Well, now here's the problem with that. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what Paul was getting them to go not do. This isn't about you all getting together and having a fellowship. This is for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's for to honor the Lord, to honor and remember the Lord's death until he come. Um, matter of fact, you go, go read the whole story on 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, because Paul, in no uncertain terms, very sternly rebukes the church at Corinth for doing this very thing. Um, but believe it or not, there's some churches that this is what they... Now, this was... It used to be more popular early, and like, but not where I'm seeing it again. So agape, if you've seen that agape feast or something like that, you may have heard of that kind of stuff. Um, that's that kind of thing there. So that is the, the unscriptural versions of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, you know, I hope some of you can get your mind off that if you haven't eaten supper yet, because some of it's pretty disgusting. But in a couple weeks, we will have the scriptural teaching of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it is a good and honorable and wonderful uh, thing. Uh, primarily, it's an act of obedience to God. Amen. And that it's amazing how much Christians always want to feel stuff, and mostly God just wants us to do stuff. It's, it's the, it's, I say Christians. People always want to feel something with their religion. You can feel something. It's possible. Uh, I have had great joy in the Lord, but they keep trying to turn, I, I don't know, they keep trying to turn things that we're supposed to do into something that's you know, because everybody just loves getting up every morning and, I get to go to work today. You know, Christ, the Christian life can sometimes be the same way. It can sometimes be the same way. Why do we do this? Because it's the right thing to do and it honors God even if I don't feel like it. Amen. Amen. All right. So that's the unscriptural way. Hey, look at that. We're six minutes early. 
<laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this.